The story of a maiden in a tower named for leafy greens contains as many threads of story as hairs on the head of that follically blessed girl. Turn the story one way, and it's about a mother's fears for her child. Look at it again, and it's a metaphor for puberty and female sexual awakening. But all the threads relate to one theme. More so than any other fairy tale, Rapunzel is about the power of love and the pain of losing it. I'm Claire Testoni, and this is Singing Bones. Rapunzel has elements in common with maiden in tower stories we discussed in Sleeping Beauty. Brunhilde kept in a ring of fire in Germanic folklore, for instance, as well as the Greek story of Hero and Leander. Hero, a priestess of Aphrodite, who stood at the top of a tower or cliff face and held up a light for her lover Leander every night to guide him to her as he swam the Dardanelles to be by her side. The story of the medieval Saint Barbara could have played a part in the forming of Rapunzel as we know it. Saint Barbara was locked in a tower by her heathen father and escaped with the help of God, only to be tortured and martyred for her faith. In ancient myths, maidens were symbols of spring, the promise of fertility. The notion of rescuing them from towers, dragons and ogres can be seen as a dramatization of courtship, of men taking that promise and making it their own. What is so powerful about Rapunzel as a story is that she's not awakened or rescued by her prince. He is merely the catalyst. She is her own agent of escape. Well, at least in most versions. The first recorded version of the story as we know it is Giambasta Basile's Petrocinella in 1634. Petrocinella coming from the Italian word for parsley. For Basile's story starts with a woman looking out her window at an ogress's garden, as in a female ogre, and craving a lush bed of parsley that grows there. The woman sneaks into the garden to repeatedly eat the parsley by the handful, until one day she is caught by the ogre. The ogre spares her life on the condition that she have the firstborn child of the woman. Soon after, the thief gives birth to a little girl who is marked by a sprig of parsley on her breast, and so she is named for the plant. Unlike later versions of the story, it takes some time for the ogre to take the child. Her mother raises her and sends her to school, the promise of the ogre never far away, just across the street. Every time she went along the street and met the ogress, the old woman said to her, Tell your mother to remember her promise. And she went on repeating this message so often that the poor mother, having no longer patience to listen to the same tale, said one day to Petrosanella, If you meet that old woman as usual, and she reminds you of the hateful promise, answer her, take it. When Petrosanella, who dreamt of no ill, met the ogress again, and heard her repeat the same words, she answered innocently as her mother had told her, Take it. Whereupon the ogre seized the girl by the hair, carried her off to a wood where the sun never entered. Then she put the poor girl into a tower, which she caused to arise by her art, which had neither gate nor ladder, but only a little window, 
through which she ascended and descended by means of Petrosonella's hair, which was very long, as sailors used to run up and down the mast of a ship. Things moved very swiftly in Basile's tale, with the prince then arriving almost at once and visiting Petrosonella while the ogre is away, and they make a plan together to drug her and escape. The prince visits every day, bringing materials to make a rope, and the village gossip tips off the ogre that her little captive is getting up to no good with a boy in the tower. I love that it's a gossiping nonna in the story that ruins it. There's something very Italian about that. Anyway, the ogre finds out, but reassures the town gossip that Petrosanella can't escape without the three magic nuts hidden in the rafters of the tower. Petrosanella, also an eavesdropper, hears this and snatches up the magic nuts quickly. That night, she and the prince escape using the ladder, and although the gossip calls out to the ogre who chases them down, Petrosanella throws one of the magic nuts at her. Each time she gets close. The first nut contains a huge magical dog, the second a lion, and the last nut contains a wolf who eats her up. Petrosanella and her prince make it safely to the prince's kingdom and marry. Basile's story was part of his collection, The Tale of Tales, or El Pentamerone, and it was written in Neapolitan. It was intended for children, although a contemporary reader would find it a little too gory and sexy to share with younger readers now. Neapolitan was not an academic language, and thus these tales did not appear in translation for some time. It is clear, however, that somehow the story was read by a French woman 65 years later when she released her own version. Charlotte Rose de Cormont de la Force was a writer and courtier of Louis XIV. She introduced the story as we know it today. She wrote it as personnet, also meaning parsley. De la Force brings a personal touch and power that was lacking in Basile's version and is perhaps so moving as she herself experienced captivity. Delaforce added heartbreak and loss to the story of the parsley girl. In Personette, the girl's father is the one that steals the parsley for his pregnant wife, craving the exotic green from the fairy's garden. The fairy takes Personette as soon as she is born and raises her in a tower that is more lavish than that described by Basile. The tower is silver and contains jewels, the latest fashions, any instrument you could want, and all the wonderful things that come from living with a fairy. Personette's hair is described as 47 feet long, golden and braided with ribbons every colour of the rainbow. Personette's beautiful singing voice lures a prince to discover her tower and watch how the fairy climbs her hair to gain entrance. The romantic union of the two is ardent and sweet, and once Personette recovers from her meeting a man for the first time in her life, they become close. And soon, her belly begins to swell with the first signs of a child. The fairy notices her belly and cuts off her braids, transporting Personette to a cave by the seaside, 
with some magic provisions to keep her fed, and it's there she gives birth to twins. To wreak revenge on the prince, the fairy impersonates Personette's voice and pulls him up to the tower by her lopped-off braids before throwing him to his death. He does not die, though. He loses his sight and searches far and wide, blind for Personette. Eventually, stumbling through the seaside, he hears her singing to his children and recognises her voice. Personet finds him and weeps tears of joy into his eyes which cure his blindness, and the fairy sees their love and softens. She transports them safely to the prince's kingdom, where they live happily. The beautiful tower that Personet lives in sounds much like Delaforce's experiences at Versailles in the court of the Sun King. At 16, she was appointed maid of honour to the Queen, and her life was never her own. She converted to Catholicism when Louis XIV revoked the laws that allowed Huguenots to practice freely, and became watched even more closely than the average woman at court. In her mid-thirties, she fell in love with a man 12 years younger, but the match was forbidden by his family. They married anyway when he turned 25 and had come into his inheritance. They eloped in secret, but were found out and their marriage forcibly annulled by the king. Delaforce was then forbidden to ever see her love again and he was sent away. She was older, a new convert who was not trusted. It was not a good match for a rich young nobleman. Delaforce took her frustrations out in her writing and was a contemporary of many great fairy tale writers such as Madame de Lannoy, Charles Perrault, and the playwright and fabulist La Fontaine. Her writing saw her fall out of favour at court and at the age of 47 she was sent to a convent where she was effectively a prisoner, having penned some satire against the king. She was unable to leave without a pardon and without losing her income. She was still a mademoiselle and at the complete mercy of the court. In 1713, she was pardoned and allowed to return to court. After 10 years of forced exile, she returned to the gilded tower that held her in other ways. Delaforce brings out the angst of forbidden love to the story that was not there before. The ache of a lover torn from her is felt in the prince's blindness and exile. And the happy ending with the twins riding off into the distance is an imagined happy ending for herself. The fairy appears like fairies often do in French tales. Malignant and indulgent, with selfish desires that aren't quite human ones, but sometimes strangely kind. Fairies are, above all, unpredictable. Personette was translated into German several times, her name becoming Rapunzel, which is another leafy green that in English we might call Rampion or Rocket. The Grimm brothers read a version by a theologist named Johann Schultz and adapted it for their own collection in 1812, in which they keep the fairy as a kidnapper and then again 
they adapted it in 1857, where they changed the fairy to a Frau Gothel, which is a generic name for an older woman. The 1857 version also admits the pregnancy, as this stage they were thinking about the younger readers and adjusting the morality quite a bit. In both versions, Rapunzel is much more punished for being unchaste rather than escaping under her own volition. In the German language versions of the tale, Frau Gothel, or the stepmother, becomes more of a focus. In these versions, there is less malevolence to her. She's not a witch, merely a mother. Many modern adaptations of the tale have drawn out the complex nature of Rapunzel and her stepmother, exploring the teenage rebellion that women express to their mothers, or indeed sexualizing the nature of their relationship as student and professor, as Anne Sexton does in her poem, based on the story. The image of the girl with hair long enough to climb and magical in its beauty is a theme that exists in other cultures as well. A legend of the Akamba people from East Africa tells of a princess who had beautiful, impossibly long black hair that she vainly combed and cared for, only to have it fall out when she was cruel and selfish. There is also a Slavic story of a girl with golden hair, as in solid gold hair. Her hair is so heavy, it holds her to the spot, keeping her from being taken away. When a young hero tries to rescue her and make her his bride by cutting off her hair, her father, a wizard, or a snake, depending which version you're reading, makes the hair grow again with the magic, rooting her to the spot once more. Women's hair has been intrinsically bound in women's lives throughout history. It is a symbol of status, beauty, youth, and virility. Charlotte Rose de la Force would have had to cut hers when she entered the convent for her crimes against Louis XIV, which would have been a shocking blow to a woman of the court, an absolute humiliation. I have to say, Rapunzel as a story made so much more sense to me when I learned about Charlotte Rose's life. I was hugely moved by a book named Bitter Greens by Kate Forsyth, a book that retold and re-examined the story of Rapunzel. It is a meticulously researched projection of Delaforce's life when she is sent to the convent. Once there, she meets an Italian nun who tells her the tale of Rapunzel. The tale itself is set in Venice and is gruesome and dark, told from both the witch's perspective and Rapunzel's. Her magic hair is golden red, with the hair of dead girls woven into it to make it impossibly long. More than just a retelling, Bitter Greens examines what makes the tale last, the sex, the drama, and the fascinating woman who wrote it into the canon of literature and myth. I spoke to Kate recently about Rapunzel. Both her book Bitter Greens and her work of non-fiction The Rebirth of Rapunzel, a mythic biography that traces the history of Rapunzel from its origins through to Tangled. Kate has a deeply personal connection to the story and it has haunted her life for some time, as she explains. There was no before. I knew from the time that I was 12 years old that I wanted to write a retelling of 
Rapunzel. I know this because I tried. I actually wrote um, a page and a half, which I still have all these years later. So I was dimly conscious of this all the time I was growing up. When I was about 15 or 16, I read um, a book by C.S. Lewis called Till We Have Faces, which is a retelling of the Cupid and Psyche Greek myth. And it's told from the point of view of the sister who is the villain of the piece. Um, and it's the first time I'd ever read a book uh, that t- retold a myth or a fairy tale from the point of view of the antagonist. And again, I went, that's what I have to do. When I write my Rapunzel, I'm going to tell it from the point of view of the maiden and of the witch. Now, time went on. I wrote a great many books. I got married, had children. But always at the back of my mind was this idea that one day I would do this. Um, and then when my daughter, my youngest child, started school, I was able to write first time, uh, full time for the first time. And I thought, now, now is the time to do it. And I wanted there to be three narrative threads. Now, it had been 30 years I had known that I was going to write from the point of view of the maiden and the witch. But I wanted a third narrative point of view because I wanted the narrative structure of the book to reflect the braid of hair, which is the most compelling motif of the tale. So the obvious thing to have done would have been to have chosen the girl's mother, the one that gives up her daughter for a handful of bitter greens. But that isn't quite what I was wanting. I was wanting something far more far more real, far more resonant, far more unexpected, far more dangerous, far more difficult. And I and so I began to think to myself, oh I wonder, I wonder who first told Rapunzel and that was how I stumbled upon the story of Charlotte Rose de Camont de la Force. Now, when I began to research her, you Googled her name and there were three Google results for her name, one of which was the Wikipedia entry for her in French. There was no English Wikipedia um, article on Charlotte Rose de la Force. And now you Googled her name and there are hundreds of thousands of hits I'm not saying it's all due to me, but I do have to say that I was lucky enough to be researching her and working on the French fairy tale tellers at a time when other people were also beginning to be interested in these forgotten stories and these forgotten women. And so around the time that I was doing all of my research and beginning to to write articles about her and blog about her and, and talk about her life, other people were also interested. And so together we've actually, uh, you know, I, I say, I think, I like to think that we've rescued um, Charlotte Rose and the other French fairy tale tellers from the oubliette of history. Mm. And, you know, certainly for the French fairy tale tellers, they were very subversive because these were women writing about love and romance at a time when marriage was seen as a business transaction and women were the commodity that were, were being bartered for, that were, that, that were being bought and sold. Women had no right. You know, their lives, that they, they were owned by the males in their lives, their father or their brother or whoever was their male guardian. And when they were married, there was a legal trans, transaction and they were handed over to the legal ownership of another man. So... For them to be writing stories about falling in love and, uh, yeah. you know, pursuing their hearts, it, 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 it upsets me when people diminish the subversive power of this storytelling. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's this idea that, you know, all she wants, you know, everything she wanted, 
are things that we now take for granted as women. She wanted to be able to marry for love. She, you know, she wanted to be able to choose her her own lover, her own husband, and she wanted to be free to create, to write. And both of those things were denied to her because she was a woman at, at the royal court of Louis the Fourteenth, who was one of the most misogynist, uh, you, you know, rulers of France ever. Um, his court was stifling, and I, I, I so sympathised with her. I kept imagining what it would be like for me, caged up in those terrible skirts and those, you know, not able to run, not able to breathe properly, being forced to stand for hours listening to the queen play cards with her dwarves, um, you know, not being allowed to do anything that she wanted because she was not she was not an, an agent of free will. Yeah. And, I mean, these are all stories of, of you know, female, uh, young females coming into their power. You know, Rapunzel is such a powerful figure of transformation and redemption for everyone around her. In the Charlotte Rose to the Fourth story, she, you know, she saves the prince, she saves herself, and she saves the witch. You'll be able to find a link to Kate Forsythe's books on my website, including Bitter Greens, The Rebirth of Rapunzel, and her other works, The Beast's Garden and The Wild Girl. Her new book is called Beauty in Thorns and is told through the lives of the women of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and examines the themes and story of Sleeping Beauty. Beauty in Thorns is out on July 3rd and I'll be releasing an extended version of the conversation I had with Kate Forsyth then. So be sure to listen to hear more about her new book, her fairy tale life and her life as an author. Music today was by Kai Engel. Singing Bones is brought to you by you, my listeners. Without your support, I wouldn't be able to make it happen. This episode was donated to you all by Sean Jameson in the UK. Thank you, Sean. If you would like to sponsor this show, it costs 25 Australian dollars, which is what it costs per month to keep me online. Just head to the website and click donate. If that's too much, just swing us whatever you can. It makes a huge difference. If you're short on cash, review us on iTunes instead and help others find this podcast. The website is singingbonespodcast.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Come find me. Singing Bones is a part of the Dark Myths Collective. If you like this podcast, I bet there's another one you'd like out there in our group. Go to darkmyths.org and try out Rumor Flies. The boys there know a lot about Disney and I feel many of you would enjoy them. Our next episode is on the red shoes, which has been one of my hardest research digs to date. Find out why soon. Till then, wishing you a happily ever after. I'm Claire Testoni. <laughs>